Egypt. This is Democracy Now! Our planet is still in the emergency room. We need to drastically reduce emissions now, and this is an issue this COP did not address. A fund for loss and damage is essential, but it's not an answer if the climate crisis washes a small island state off the map or turns an entire African country to desert. The UN Climate Summit has ended with rich countries agreeing to establish a loss and damage fund to help the global South deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. But delegates at COP27 failed to agree on any steps to phase out fossil fuels. We'll get the latest. Then we go to Colorado Springs, where a gunman opened fire on an LGBTQ nightclub, killing five people and injuring 25 on Saturday night. The shooting occurred on the eve of Transgender Day of Remembrance. This is our only safe space here in the Springs. And so for this to get shot up, like, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go? Yeah, we can rebuild and, and come together and this, but what about those people that lost their lives for no reason? Plus, the World Cup has begun in the Gulf state of Qatar. We'll speak with Human Rights Watch about Qatar's labor and human rights record. By one count, 6,500 migrant workers have died in Qatar since 2010 when it was awarded the right to host the Games. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt, in Sharm el-Sheikh. Delegates at the U.N. Climate Summit agreed Sunday to establish a landmark loss and damage fund to help the Global South deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe, largely caused by rich countries. The U.S. historically is the world's worst polluter. It was the last major holdout on the proposal before finally agreeing to the fund on Saturday. But it's unclear how these commitments will be enforced in the U.S. Such funds would need to be appropriated by now-split Congress. Meanwhile, activists at the U.N. and or the U.N. and vulnerable nations have condemned the lack of action on lowering emissions in order to reach the goal of keeping global temperature increase to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This is Alok Sharma, the president of last year's COP26 speaking Sunday. Emissions peaking before 2025, as the science tells us, is necessary. Not in this text. Clear follow-through on the phase-down of coal. Not in this text. A clear commitment to phase out all fossil fuels. Not in this text. And the energy text weakened in the final minutes. Friends, I said in Glasgow that the pulse of 1.5 degrees was weak. Unfortunately, it remains on life support. We'll have more on the COP27 agreement after headlines. In Colorado, a gunman shot and killed five people at an LGBTQ nightclub in Colorado Springs just before midnight Saturday. At least two dozen others were injured. 
Police said at least one person inside Club Q confronted the shooter, likely preventing further bloodshed. Among the victims, 40-year-old Kelly Loving, a trans woman visiting from Denver, and Club Q workers Derek Rump and Daniel Davis Aston, a trans man. Police have taken a 22-year-old suspect into custody. This is Joshua Thurman, a survivor of the massacre. We heard uh, them saying check certain people because they're critical. Um, we, we heard everything, and all I can think about is everything, my life. Just everything, friends, family, loved ones. I came here to celebrate my birthday. Honestly, I was supposed to be in Denver, but I came back a day early. Community members gathered at a memorial near the nightclub on Sunday. Sunday also marked Transgender Day of Remembrance. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast when we go to Colorado. President Volodymyr Zelensky said authorities recorded 400 shellings in eastern Ukraine Sunday with the Donetsk region bearing the heaviest attacks. On Saturday, a series of powerful explosions near the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant prompted the head of the U.N. nuclear watchdog, Rafael Grossi, to make an urgent plea to stop fighting in the region. You're playing with fire, he warned. In Indonesia, at least 56 people are dead, hundreds injured after an earthquake struck West Java province earlier today. Rescue teams are still searching for the people trapped in the rubble of collapsed buildings. Many areas are also facing power outages. China reported three COVID-19 deaths in Beijing since Saturday, the nation's first deaths linked to the coronavirus in six months, as officials warn Beijing is facing its worst outbreak since the start of the pandemic. This comes as China's strict zero-COVID policy has triggered rare public protests. Meanwhile, in the U.S., Los Angeles County is advising residents to once again start masking indoors amidst rising cases. COVID-19 is still causing an average of close to 300 daily deaths in the United States. The 2022 FIFA World Cup soccer tournament got underway in Qatar Sunday after a flashy opening ceremony in the capital city, Doha. In the opening match, Ecuador defeated Qatar's national team 2-0. This year's World Cup has been marred by revelations that thousands of migrant workers have faced serious labor and human rights abuses. They work to build stadiums and other infrastructure for Qatar ahead of the games. Meanwhile, the captain of Iran's national team spoken out in support of Iranians protesting back home. Essan Hajj Safi spoke to reporters in Qatar on Sunday ahead of the match between Iran and England. We have to accept that the conditions in our country are not right and our people are not happy. I hope conditions change to meet the expectations of the people and that they become happy, all of them. The situation in the country is not great and the team knows this. We'll have more on the World Cup later in the broadcast. In Iran, two of the nation's most prominent actresses were arrested Sunday after they voiced support for anti-government protests and appeared in public without wearing a hijab as required by law. Ahead of her arrest on Sunday, Hengama Ghaziani wrote, quote, 
whatever happens, know that, as always, I will stand with the people of Iran. This may be my last post. She added, Katayun Riahi was also arrested and accused of acting against Iran's authorities. Meanwhile, UNICEF says it is deeply concerned by reports of children being killed, injured, and detained in Iran during recent anti-government protests. According to the organization Human Rights Activists in Iran, 46 boys and 12 girls have been killed since the protests first erupted in mid-September. Some of the children were as young as eight years old. In Syria, at least 31 people were killed, including a journalist and 10 other civilians, as Turkey's military launched a series of weekend airstrikes targeting Kurdish militias. Turkey's government called the attacks an act of self-defense after it blamed the banned Kurdistan Workers' Party for an explosion in Istanbul that killed six people November 13th. Earlier today, three people were reportedly killed and 10 others wounded in a Turkish border town after rockets fired from a Kurdish-controlled region struck a high school and two houses. Turkey's government pledged to respond to the attacks in the strongest way possible. Elon Musk has restored Donald Trump's Twitter account after conducting a Twitter poll to determine whether the former president should be allowed back on the platform after he was banned following the January 6th Capitol insurrection for inciting violence. On Saturday, Trump said he had no plans to return to Twitter. Another banned user, Kanye West, also appears to have had his account restored. West was blocked last month prior to Musk's takeover after posting anti-Semitic tweets. It remains to be seen whether Musk's latest move will cause more of Twitter's dwindling staff and advertisers to leave. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has named former Justice Department prosecutor Jack Smith to lead investigations into Donald Trump's role in the Capitol insurrection, as well as whether Trump mishandled classified materials. Based on recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well, I have concluded that it is in the public interest to appoint a special counsel. Special counsel Jack Smith also previously worked at the U.S. Attorney's Office in New York and investigated and prosecuted war crimes and crimes against humanity at the Hague's International Criminal Court. In California, a federal judge sentenced Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes to 11 years in prison for defrauding investors in her blood testing company that falsely claimed its machines could run a wide range of diagnostic tests from a few drops of blood. Holmes was declared the world's youngest self-made woman billionaire by Forbes in 2014, but Theranos started to crumble just a year later following an investigation by The Wall Street Journal. President Biden and other G20 leaders are calling for more regulation of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to ensure global financial stability following the collapse of crypto exchange company FTX last week. Investors have sued disgraced CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, as well as a number of celebrity endorsers, including NFL star Tom Brady, comedian Larry David and tennis star Naomi Osaka. 
FTX owes its 50 largest creditors over $3 billion, according to a bankruptcy filing, while one million or more people and businesses could be affected by its downfall. One of FTX's creditors, the Ontario Teachers Pension Fund, was forced to write off its $95 million investment. The Biden administration asked the Supreme Court Friday to allow its student debt relief program to go into effect as various legal challenges have put the plan on hold. On Saturday, the Education Department started notifying some 16 million applicants they've been approved for up to $20,000 in federal loan relief each. In other Supreme Court news, a former anti-abortion activist turned whistleblower has come forward to allege that Justice Samuel Alito leaked the outcome of a landmark 2014 ruling weeks before the court's decision was made public. The whistleblower, Reverend Rob Shank, told The New York Times that a wealthy conservative donor informed him about the court's yet-to-be-published decision after she and her husband had dinner with Alito and his wife. Alito allegedly let the couple know the court was preparing to rule in favor of Hobby Lobby, a craft store chain whose owners sought to deny birth control to workers citing religious freedom. Shank says he shared the leaked information with Hobby Lobby's president and used the advanced knowledge to prepare a public relations campaign. In July, Shank sent a letter to Chief Justice John Roberts informing him of the alleged 2014 Hobby leak, Hobby Lobby leak, but received no reply. Through a spokesperson, Alito denied any involvement in leaking the outcome of the ruling. The New York State Education Department has banned schools from using Native American logos or imagery for their mascots unless they receive approval from an indigenous community. State schools that don't comply could face loss of funding. And in Argentina, the human rights icon, Ebe de Bonafini, died on Sunday at the age of 93. She was one of the founders of Mothers of the Plaza de Mayo. In 1977, after two of her sons were disappeared by the Argentine security forces during the country's brutal U.S.-backed military dictatorship, Bonafini and other mothers of the disappeared led frequent protests in Buenos Aires' Plaza de Mayo in defiance of the dictatorship, wearing white scarves on their heads, which became a symbol of their struggle. In the decades that followed, they continued to fight for justice for the tens of thousands of people disappeared, tortured, and killed during Argentina's dirty war. In 2016, Bonafini spoke as the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo held their 2000th march. I think that there are no women like us in the world with the strength in our bellies and our hearts and our bodies with so much responsibility for our children whom we love, whom we love and whom we continue to defend. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Today we're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt. We just flew in from Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, over the weekend, where the two-week-long U.N. climate summit ended Sunday. In a major breakthrough, rich countries agreed to establish a loss and damage fund to help the global south deal with the worst effects of the climate catastrophe. But delegates at COP27 failed to agree on any steps to phase out fossil fuels. 
nations in the global south and climate justice activists have been demanding loss and damage fund for the past 30 years. But the United States and other large polluting nations had long opposed the proposal. This is U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres speaking Sunday. Our planet is still in the emergency room. We need to drastically reduce emissions now, and this is an issue this COP did not address. A fund for loss and damage is essential, but it's not an answer if the climate crisis washes a small island state off the map or turns an entire African country to desert. The world still needs a giant leap on climate ambition. The red line we must not cross is the line that takes our planet over the 1.5 degree temperature limit. To have any hope of keeping to 1.5, we need to massively invest in renewables and end our addiction to fossil fuels. We're joined right now from Sharm el-Sheikh by Assad Rayman, executive director of War on Want and the lead spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition. Assad, welcome back to Democracy Now! We spoke to you last Monday as the COP27 negotiations were underway. Now they have ended. Can you talk about what has come of this? What do you think of the final COP27 proposal? Hi, hi, Amy, and always a pleasure to join you. Um, Well, as Antonio Guterres said in your piece there, on the critical questions of are we reducing harm? Are we keeping temperatures well below the 1.5 degrees? Uh, there was no progress. Uh, we didn't see any mention of the equitable phase out of fossil fuels. In fact, we simply saw uh, a repeat of what was agreed in Glasgow, which was about unabated coal. Um, and of course, many rich countries came to these climate negotiations, uh, having expanded their own fossil fuels. Um, The United States, the UK, the European Union are all uh, planning massive expansions of oil and gas, and even, incredibly, of coal. Um, So uh, flying very much in the face of science, and the science has already told us that we have to basically halve our emissions by 2030 to be able to be at zero by 2050. We've got less than five to 10 years of the current carbon budget if we want to limit temperatures below 1.5. And shockingly, that the latest synthesis report has said we've only reduced our our emissions in terms of the NDCs, the plans that governments have got in place, by 0.3%. So we're so far off in terms of actually reducing the harm that, that, that governments are committed to and, of course, are resulting in the devastating consequences we're seeing around the world. And if to make matters worse, um, we also saw Sharm el-Sheikh agree a massive expansion of carbon markets, which basically are about offsets, uh, which are a license for rich countries and corporations to pollute. If somewhere else, somebody else takes some action, we simply don't have the carbon budget for that. The decision uh, has no safeguards, uh, there's no review, and there's no transparency. It's a recipe for disaster. So talk more about the loss and damage fund, uh, about any kind of, um, uh, whether it is voluntary or not, and what exactly was the role of the United States, the last holdout? So this was the uh, on the flip side, you know, if we say you have to reduce harm, you have to repair the harm that's already been done, and then you have to compensate people for the harm that can no longer be repaired. And we can see that, of course, with 
the reality facing many, many countries who are not just facing uh, a climate catastrophe, are facing debt, uh, still recovering from a COVID pandemic, have a historical and a huge issue of tackling inequality and poverty and are simply being overwhelmed, as we saw in Pakistan, in Nigeria, across the Horn of Africa and in the Caribbean. Now, the rich countries led by the United States, but backed also by the European Union and the UK, have long dragged their feet on the issue of loss and damage. It's been 30 years in the making, as you mentioned in your opening. Um, but at the 11th hour, they were finally dragged kicking and screaming over the line to agree the establishment of the fund. Um, uh, but, of course, this is the first step. No money was agreed, and we still got to agree the process of setting up the fund. But it is a major step breakthrough. But as a lifeline, uh, it gives a glimmer of hope, but a deflated life, life belt is still a deflated life belt. What really matters now is, will rich countries meet their responsibility, put finance in that, to the scale that is needed, and will developing countries be able to access that to recognise that the vulnerabilities that we're seeing are now global and, of course, are compounded for many, many developing countries by the structural inequalities that they face. And Asad, if you can talk more about the fact that the wording was changed on fossil fuels from phasing out to phasing down and what practically that means in the world. So uh, from, from civil society organ organizations and, of course, the demand from communities on the front line has been we need an equitable phase out. Look, f fossil fuels are at the core of greenhouse gas emissions. So the, the key thing is, what is our plan to end our addiction to fossil fuels? And how can it be done in a just way that those countries who've got the capacity and the resources and are responsible for the majority of emissions in the world take the first step? Uh, now, rich countries have long blocked that idea of, of, of an equitable phase out of fossil fuels. What they've wanted to concentrate on is coal, because largely developed countries have moved away from coal. And of course, they're expanding. Uh, I mean, it's shocking that President Biden, for example, has authorised more permits for expansion of fossil fuels than even Donald Trump did. And, of course, we would widely recognise that President Trump was a climate denialist. So uh, what we're seeing is not, that kind, not the, the language that we need in terms of actually a phase out. Now, uh, 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 what, we've, what we've seen also, of course, because of the pressure of the hundreds of fossil fuel lobbyists and many countries who are relying on fossil fuels for their own economic development, they began to water down their language around fossil fuels. They want to caveat that by talking about clean uh, fossil fuels, uh, somehow that we can remove the carbon around them. They're positioning gas as if it's a clean energy uh, uh, resource rather than actually going full pelt on the renewable energy that we know will both be cleaner, will be fairer, will tackle energy poverty, and of course, is also cheaper. Uh, your final 30-second summary of where we are after 27 years of COP. Well, look, on the critical issue about finance, I mean, it's hugely concerning. In 2020, rich countries promised, you know, 100 billion a year. That's still not being met. 
we again had just expressions of concern. But there is a positive step that we are going to be in conversation about a new finance goal in 2024. But I would say there has been some major breakthroughs. The fact that now the financial institutions like the IMF and World Bank have been talked about in the text as being not fit for purpose, that we have now a programme on just transition, which includes social protection, which has recognised that the, as what the IPCC talked about, that we need a compact on climate and poverty if we're going to actually have a just transition. But the most important lesson I take away from Sharm el-Sheikh is that the combined pressure of global civil society, both in Sharm and in cities uh, around the world and in capitals around the world, combined with strong leadership of the G77, we can move things forward. We can have victory. So now the fight continues and we have to build more and more power because when we do, we can face down these fossil fuel backed governments. Asad Raymond, we want to thank you so much for being with us, executive director of War on Want and lead spokesperson for the, giant, for the Climate Justice Coalition. Let's end this segment with some of the climate activists who are calling for loss and damage, uh, a fund at COP27. This is Ron Pedros with the Asian People's Movement on Debt and Development, which organized the protest this past week. Food for people! Not for profit! Food for people! Not for profit! It's the Food, Land, Water Action Day organized by the Asian People's Movement on Debt and Development. According to the World Food Program, currently we have almost a billion people who are hungry. The number of people who have no access to affordable Food has grown from 135 million to now 345 million in the last couple of years. As governments gov gathered here today, drag their foot, their feet rather, for decisive, ambitious, and realistic climate actions, people are dying every second. We call on a number of speakers to tell their stories. Directly to this COP, we call on Wanun to speak for Thailand. I am also bringing the voices of the people who I have been working with. And those are women's group and also farmers and fisher folks. You know about climate impacts. So unpredictable rainfalls, long duration of droughts, and also flash flooding. And those farmers not producing or causing any CO2 emissions, but they are bearing all the costs of climate impacts. All the solutions that here in this COP and the previous COP has been offering is really a false solutions. Let me name a few. Smart climate agriculture, smart farming, smart farmers, large agricultural lands. And those are supposed to be helping the communities and farmers on the ground to survive and to adapt to the impacts of climate change. But those false solutions are really, really putting more and accelerating the impacts of climate change onto the local communities and farmers and women. We call on our speaker from Africa, from Friends of the Earth Africa, Kwame. What's happening in Africa, actually, people are dying because there is no more food. Small-scale farmers have been pushed away. Contracts have been signed to take land from people, from small-scale farmers. 
People are dying of hunger. People are dying for floods and droughts. It's not fair. Thank you very much. Uh, I am here from Ecuador. As uh, it was said, in Ecuador we have several problems with uh, water because of at least two reasons. First of all, climate change, which is shrinking uh, the, the glaciers in the mountains, but also we have mining companies affecting, affecting the water in the Paramos, which is like a sponge that absorbs water, and this brings water for agriculture and for the peoples in the city. 20 years ago, we started here together with other organizations asking that the only solution is to start to leave fossil fuels on the ground. And at that moment, everybody was thinking, oh, these women, all of these people are crazy. But now everybody is talking that is an important issue to start to leave fossil fuels on the ground in order to address climate change. But also together with the Filipino peoples, with the Asian movement in the, for that, we have been claiming that it's not the question of finance climate change is a question to repair is a question to give to pay the, the ecological and climate debt that have the industrialized countries with the southern countries like Ecuador I belong to a country of nature I belong to Nepal where most of the people's basic work is agriculture as our comrades said agriculture for food not for profit in Nepal due to Climate change due to climate crisis, several catastrophes have been facing by, faced by the local community. Last year, community has to face loss of whole rice, ready to harvest rice, which forced them to take loan to continue their livelihood for a year, to educate their children. This is what people are facing. This is what community are facing in the ground. You all note that all the leaders as well. If agriculture goes wrong, everything in this world will go wrong. You cannot survive only drinking oil. What do we want? Climate justice. When do we want that? Now. What do we want? Climate justice. When do we want that? Now. To see more of our coverage from COP27, the UN Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, go to democracynow.org. Coming up, we go to Colorado Springs, where a gunman opened fire at an LGBTQ nightclub, killing five people, injuring 25 Saturday night. The shooting occurred on the eve of Transgender Day of Remembrance. Stay with us.
lovers and friends by the communards. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt, but going now to Colorado, where a gunman wearing body armor and armed with an AR-15-style rifle shot and killed five people at an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs just before midnight on Saturday. At least 25 people were injured. People are investigating the shooting at Club Q as a potential hate crime. Three victims have been identified, Kelly Loving, a trans woman visiting from Denver, and Club Q workers Derek Rump and Daniel Davis Aston, a trans man. The shooting occurred on the eve of Transgender Day of Remembrance, a day to remember transgender, non-binary, and gender non-conforming people who've been murdered as a result of transphobia. This is Joshua Thurman, a survivor of the Saturday Night Massacre. As I was dancing on the dance floor, um, I heard shots fired. I thought it was the music, um, because there were no screams, there was no help, help, nothing like that. Um, Then there were more shots. When I realized what was going on, I ran to the dressing room immediately. There was a customer that followed me, and there was a drag performer, uh, Delusional, who was in the dressing room. I made them lock the doors, and we got down on the ground and cut off the lights immediately. Joshua, what does this mean for the LGBTQ community here in Colorado Springs, this shooting? It's it's hard to say. It means so much because this is our only safe space here in the Springs. And so for this to get shot up, like, what are we going to do now? Where are we going to go? Yeah, we can rebuild and, and come together and this, but what about those people that lost their lives for no reason? Like, the 18, other 18 that were injured, I could have been one of them. Like, it's... It means a lot because, again, what are we going to do now? How are we going to feel safe in our in our city? This was your safe space. Yeah, this was the only LGBTQIA plus space in the entire city of Colorado Springs. It's won awards in Independent Magazine. It's I got my start here. Like so many of my friends I met here and people that I call loved ones. And now it's shattered. That's Joshua Thurman speaking to KRDO. Police in Colorado Springs have taken a 22-year-old suspect named Anderson Lee Aldrich into custody. Police say at least one patron of the club confronted the gunman to stop the shooting. The suspected gunman was arrested last year on charges of felony menacing and kidnapping after threatening his mother with a homemade bomb. The gunman is the grandson of California Republican Assemblyman Randy Vogel. We go now to Denver, where we're joined by Colorado State Representative Leslie Herod. She's the first LGBTQ plus African-American told office in the Colorado General Assembly. She attended high school in Colorado Springs. She's now running to be mayor of Denver. She tweeted Sunday, waking up to news about another mass shooting. This time in my hometown of Colorado Springs, Club Q is a place of refuge for so many, including myself. I'm both devastated and infuriated. That's the words of State Representative Leslie Herod, 
who's joining us now. Thank you so much. Our condolences to you, to the whole community in Colorado Springs and Colorado, the United States, actually, and around the world. Um, can you talk about what you now understand is the latest of what happened, the effects on the community in Colorado Springs, and what you want to happen now? Yeah. Uh, well, first, um, thank you for having me this morning. And I'm uh, sad that it's uh, under these circumstances. Uh, I just left uh, the vigil in Colorado Springs um, yesterday. And what I know is I know Club Q to be that place of refuge, to be that place of solace and connection for so many people that feel unconnected. But what I want folks to know and understand is that Colorado Springs is not a place of hate. It's a place of love. And I saw so much love and outpouring of support yesterday when I was down in the Springs with the survivors, you know, with the victims. And, and, and folks wanted people to know that. Um, I was speaking to a young man who lost his partner um, in the shooting. And, um, you know, while he was completely shaken and completely devastated, he came out for that embrace. He came out for that support. And he got it. And he got it. And I think it's important that we realize that. But Right now, we're talking about, you know, what happened that night. We know that there were two patrons, at least, that subdued the gunmen. If they hadn't have jumped in and risked their lives to save others, the tragedy would have been more widespread. We know that more folks would have died if they didn't take quick action. They are heroes. They are angels. And we need to lift them up. But I'm reminded that these are folks who are shamed just for who they are, who they love, and how they present. They are shamed by elected officials. They are shamed by community leaders. And just recently here in Colorado, we had a very large nonprofit organization tell people who work there to hide who they are, to not act on their gay urges if they wanted to stay working in that in that location. That's, that's the stuff that we're up against every single day. That's the stuff and the rhetoric that LGBTQ plus people are up against every single day, and it's got to stop. Hmm. You know, this news that um, if this is the person who did it, he is the grandson of the California legislator, Vopel, uh, who described the January 6th insurrection as the Lexington and Concord event. Um, if you can talk more about what this community of violence is also about and how it must be confronted, as you describe people gathering round um, those that are suffering right now. Yeah, it's clear why this person um, did this, right? Why he went into an LGBTQ club uh, and, and, and sprayed bullets, you know, mass destruction on people. Um, it's because of the hate, right, that we hear in the rhetoric every single day. And knowing that he is connected to an extremist family is is something that I think we all must take note of. But make no mistake, anyone who turns on their Twitter feed or their social media feed every single day can see this hate. In fact, just yesterday, I was targeted by um, by an organization online simply for supporting trans youth simply for supporting transgender youth and their families. And I refuse to stop. The hate will not make us go back into the shadows. The hate will not make us be ashamed for supporting those in our communities that need love and support. But make no mistake, um, there's a clear path and a clear connection between the hateful rhetoric that we hear from people and what we see today. I mean, when we lift up folks like Kyle Rittenhouse, right, and across the country, people are praising him for murdering protesters, murdering protesters. You know, it's, it's no it's no surprise that we have more folks that want to go down in history 
for harming and killing people that have been dehumanized simply for who they love or what we stand up for. And it's wrong. It's got to stop. I don't care if you're Democrat, Republican or independent. We all have to stand up together and say this rhetoric has to stop. This using people as political fodder in our games has to stop because it's killing people. So the Colorado governor, Jared Polis, the first openly gay man to be governor uh, elected and then reelected, addressed the memorial service yesterday. Um, He also, Colorado is the 11th state to block the use of the controversial defense strategy called the gay panic defense As a Colorado state legislator, uh, Leslie Harrod, can you talk about the battle for LGBTQ rights and what's next on the agenda for Colorado? Absolutely. Um, during the pandemic, uh, I was a co-sponsor of the bill uh, that ended the gay uh, gay panic defense, meaning, you know, oh, I killed them or I harmed them or or I beat them because I found out that they were gay and I went into a panic. That was a legal defense on the books here in Colorado, and it's a legal defense on the books in many states across this country. And it's wrong. It's wrong. Because just because someone is gay or transgender doesn't mean that they should be targeted for hate and then let off the hook, you know. And so this battle for LGBTQ equality has been a long fought one in Colorado. We started with Amendment 2 as the hate state, known as the hate state because we said it was legal to discriminate against LGBTQ people. Since then, we have made a complete turnaround, right, where we've passed in, um, passed legislation affirming marriage, where we passed benefits for LGBTQ couples, families, and in adoption. And now we have a gay governor. You know, we're leading the way. LGBTQ people are leading the way here in Colorado. But that's not without backlash, right? That's not without folks coming continuously and bringing legislation that's harmful to LGBT communities, saying it is okay to discriminate, saying it's okay to harm people, you know, saying that it's okay specifically to target and bully LGBTQ youth. And to say that if their families are supporting them and are gender affirming, you know, that they should be in jail. We see these types of bills in Colorado all the time. We see them across the country. And there, in fact, there has been an increase. And so folks who think that we're just going to age our way out of homophobia and transphobia, they're wrong. This is being bred into our youngest people. This is being echoed in the highest halls of power in our country, saying that we should discriminate, saying that folks should be dehumanized dehumanized simply for who they are. That's what's breeding this hate. And I got to tell you, I am still infuriated. You know, I woke up yesterday infuriated. I'm still infuriated today. And I know Colorado has much more work to do. And it starts by protecting our transgender community because they are the ones that are under attack so much, so much right now. And people excuse it every single day. Uh, The congressman from Colorado Springs, Republican Doug Lamborn, once pushed to defund PBS for airing an episode of the cartoon Arthur that featured a same-sex marriage. Yeah, I mean, exactly. And it's 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 interesting to see these like, you know, posts of support, these statements of 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 support and prayers for folks when literally some of these people have been spewing the hate that made this a reality. Right. Spewing the hate that made folks think it was okay to target an LGBTQ nightclub, you know. And quite frankly, um, you know, folks are forgetting about Pulse. Folks are forgetting about Matthew Shepard. And we can't let that stop. And in fact, 
In fact, in our schools, they want to not teach about Matthew Shepard and his murder. They want to not teach about what happened at Pulse, you know, and they want to put people in the shadows, make folks hide, you know, and ignore what has truly happened to LGBTQ people across the country. We are being targeted. We are being attacked. And all we want to do is live our lives as freely as and as openly as everyone else. You know, I'm proud to serve as an LGBTQ elected official. But I got to tell you, when when we are not at the table, the rhetoric, the hate, it rises to the top. And we have a transgender legislator in the Colorado General Assembly the first time ever. And the, the hate that she gets every single day by our colleagues and our members, you know, it's infuriating. And can you imagine then what our youngest people are going through? I support a group called Draguton, and these are young people who are celebrating who they are. They are performing in drag. They are beautiful. They are glorious, you know. And right now, they are being attacked. They are being attacked, and their parents are being attacked simply for living their lives, you know. Um, it, it's wrong, and I don't I, want to hear I want to from talk elected more. officials. Go ahead. I want to talk more about drag queen events that have faced Uh, online hate and protests, including one planned at Denver Botanic Garden in June during Pride Month that was canceled due to hateful comments and emails. Do you believe the hateful backlash uh, might have contributed to the violence and depravity uh, what happened on Saturday night in Colorado Springs? Of course, of course they're related. Again, there is a straight line between those types of actions, those types of threats, literal threats against people who are just going for story time or drag queen um, celebration, you know, and, and, and a transgender day of remembrance, right? Of course, these are all related. Um, and because they go unanswered, because we don't see um, any type of follow-up or prosecution, because we're not holding people accountable, right, then it just continues. Every day there's a hate crime in Colorado and across this country that either is unreported or underreported, you know, because folks know, because folks know and have experienced the fact that their attack has been pushed to the side. We're we're still not even calling this a hate crime, what happened in Colorado Springs. And I don't know why we have to wait before we call it that. This was an act of hate. This was an act of terror. This was an intentional act to push LGBTQ people back into the shadows, to make them feel unsafe in one of the few places where we actually do feel safe and loved and supported. It's wrong. And so as I listened to the intro before this program, I sympathize with, with the patron who talked about how, you know, how can we feel safe again in this place? It's going to be hard, but I encourage us all to go back out. I encourage us all to be ourselves, to be out and to be proud of who we are and to say we're not going away just because of this hate. But we need allies. We need our champions to step up and say something, too. We cannot let this go unanswered. And let's not forget that if, in fact, this person is the same one who threatened his mother with a bomb, Mm. so often these mass shootings are linked to violence against women that occurred before. Mm. Leslie Herod, I want to thank you so much for being with us. Um, She is running for mayor of Denver. She is currently a Colorado state representative for the 8th District, the first LGBTQ plus African-American to hold office in the Colorado General Assembly, attended high school in in Colorado Springs. Uh, She calls it her hometown. We thank you so much for being there. Next up, we're going to the World Cup, which is beginning in the country of Qatar. We'll speak to Human Rights Watch about Qatar's labor and human rights record. Stay with us. I can eat my dinner in a family. 
Affairs to You, covered by Sinead O'Connor. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Cairo, Egypt, after the U.N. Climate Summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. But we're going to look now at the 2022 World Cup, which started Sunday in Qatar, with fans from around the globe attending the month-long soccer or football tournament. This is the first time the games will be played in the winter due to Qatar's extreme summer temperatures. Qatar's the first country in the Middle East to host the World Cup. It won its bid to host the Games a decade ago in December 2010, shortly before the Arab Spring protests erupted. This small nation draws its wealth from sales of liquefied natural gas, hosts the forward headquarters of the U.S. Military Central Command. Today, the teams of England, Wales, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Switzerland announced their captains will not wear armbands during the World Cup Games in support of LGBTQ rights after tournament organizer FIFA said players who wear the bands will be sanctioned. Homosexuality is illegal in Qatar. Human Rights Watch found that as recently as September, Qatari security forces had arrested and abused LGBT people in detention. This comes as Qatar and FIFA have faced years of protest over conditions faced by migrant workers subjected to forced labor to build its stadiums. On Saturday, the FIFA president, Johnny Infantino, opened a news conference in Doha, Qatar, with a stunning hour-long monologue. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel uh, a migrant worker. So that's FIFA President Johnny Infantino speaking Saturday. He also said FIFA would establish a legacy fund after the World Cup to compensate workers and their families who faced abuse and even death while building the World Cup stadiums in Qatar. This is a former migrant worker named Hari, featured in a report by Human Rights Watch. When I went to Lusail in Qatar, there was nothing. There wasn't even a single building. Now there are towers everywhere. We built those towers. In the heat, we worked out of compulsions with face covers. We were drenched in sweat. We poured water sweat from our shoes. Even in that heat, we worked hard. My son did not recognize me when I first came from Qatar to Nepal. My son's aim is to play football, so I went to watch him play for a little bit. I met my son only five times in the 14 years I was away. I used to cry and feel bad that I had to stay away from children for work. A multi-country investigation by The Guardian found between 2010 and 2020, almost 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar. This is Nandakali Nepali, whose husband was one of those deaths. My husband used to work as a driver. He used to come for two months every two years. This time, only his dead body came four years after he had last visited Nepal. 
What would he say? He used to say, I will work here till I can. We have loans we need to repay. My husband was my source of support. Without him, who do I rely on? I sit and I cry on my own. Whom can I show my tears to? For more, we're joined by Minky Worden. She's director of global initiatives at Human Rights Watch. She's been researching human rights violations around the World Cup. Her article for Newsweek is headlined, The World Cup is Exciting, Lucrative, and Deadly. Minky, welcome back to Democracy Now! Just lay out what you have found. So for starters, this is the deadliest major sporting event possibly ever in history. It's scheduled to be watched by 5 billion people worldwide. But uh, fans of football or soccer absolutely cannot forget the high human cost to deliver this World Cup and that it takes place against a backdrop of completely unacceptable discrimination against LGBT people, a lack of protections for women's rights. Uh, Qatar has a male guardianship system and, of course, a lack of press freedom to investigate migrant labor abuses. You mentioned at the outset that FIFA has committed to a legacy fund. There's no indication right now that that legacy fund will actually go to the thousands uh, to the families of thousands of migrant workers who lost their lives to deliver this World Cup. So talk about what you understand, how the system works from 2010 to 20, something like 6,500 workers died in Qatar, not necessarily all of them building the stadiums, but many. Explain what the illegal loans and debt bondage system for workers in Qatar is and why Qatar is saying they've changed their system. Well, Qatar has passed some modest labor law improvements, but they have not gotten rid of the kafala system. The kafala system was in place in 2010 when FIFA awarded the World Cup to Qatar, and it has continued through to today. What this is, is a, it's a system of modern-day slavery. It has uh, features like, um, in the case of many workers, they had to take out loans to work in Qatar. So these could be loans from anywhere from $700 to $4,000 U.S. dollars. But that would be a crushing loan that you would have to work, in some cases, for years to repay. Some of the, the saddest cases that Human Rights Watch has seen are families where the main breadwinner, a young man, went to Qatar, took out a loan to work there, worked in debt bondage, uh, was cheated of wages, did not receive the wages he was promised, and then his body returned home to his family in a coffin. So th these cases, these are utterly preventable labor rights abuses. And uh, one other major point, the reason this has happened is um, in 2010 and still today, there are no trade unions. Trade unions for migrant workers are illegal. And also there's no striking. So it's illegal to strike. So even if you are working in deadly conditions, um, if you think you're going to have a heart attack or you're experiencing um, heat stress from working in more than 120 degrees Fahrenheit or 50 degrees Celsius, even if you're working in dangerous and even deadly conditions, there's no ability, if you're a migrant worker in Qatar, to strike for your basic human rights. The government of Qatar has refused to do autopsies on the workers who die as they're working? Yeah, this is—I mean, it's— uh 
it's difficult to understand how there could be thousands of deaths and how they couldn't be well documented. But when you understand the system of labor exploitation that was present in Qatar, it's, it's actually very easy to understand. So there's a workforce at any given time of two million migrant laborers, and then the population is about 250 or 300,000. So that means 90 to 95 percent of the workforce are migrant laborers, and they're coming from some of the world's poorest countries, um, India, Nepal, Bangladesh, the Philippines, Ghana, Kenya. And these are migrant workers who are leaving home for years at a time to make a better future for their children. But once they arrive there, they find that they're in control of the sponsoring company, which is exploiting them. And there's really uh, many of the workers have described to us, or as you saw on your on the video, they're working in deadly conditions, but there's no way to protest and there's no way out. Mm. The FIFA president, we just played Johnny Infantino, opened the Saturday news conference with a stunning hour-long monologue. He said Qatar's offering migrants the opportunity to provide for their families, whereas Europe has closed its borders. If you could comment on this and also why this oil-rich nation cannot afford to pay a living wage to its workers? So the last question first. Um, the system that was in place, so there was an um, uh, absolute concentration, unprecedented concentration of construction to build this World Cup that started in 2010. Those Qatari companies, and remember, migrant workers had no, had no basic human rights, those Qatari companies were competing against each other for the lowest cost. Um, I think uh, every country can do a better job of respecting the rights of migrant workers, but we've never before seen such a concentration of construction. And to be clear, this is at least $220 billion of construction. So it's eight new stadiums where they previously didn't exist in the desert. It's hundreds of miles of, railra- of railways, um, uh, highways, hundreds of new hotels. Uh, office towers springing up. So the construction was unprecedented for this World Cup. You can broadly call it infrastructure. And the the situation for migrant workers was that they really were desperate to earn money. And once they were there, had no—in uh, some cases, we documented families—the uh, workers begged the sponsors to send them home. Minky Worden, we want to thank you for being with us. Of course, we're going to continue to cover this story. Minky Worden is director of global initiatives at Human Rights Watch. That does it to, uh, for our show. Special thanks to Sharifa Dokudus, Hani Massoud, Dennis Moynihan, Nermeen Shaker, and Kyra, our whole team in New York. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.